In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day, for all of the graces that we have received, for the many ways that you have made yourself present to us. Lord, we know that you have more surprises in store for us tonight. Help us to be receptive to receiving more of you. Mother Mary, we ask you to pray for us in a special way tonight. St. Joseph, St. Faustina, Pope St. John Paul II, pray for us as we pray together. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you can turn to session five. The way we will be, eschatological man, comes from the Greek eschaton, which means the last things. So one of the courses I had to study in preparation for my ordination to the priesthood was eschatology, study of the last things. So as Christians, we believe that there's death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Those are the last things. So we want to look at what John Paul II had to say about eschatological man. Christ appeals to the resurrection The resurrection of the body. Let's read that first bullet point. The truth about man's destiny cannot be understood as a state of the soul alone, separated from the body, but must be understood as the definitively and perfectly integrated state of man brought about by a perfect union of the soul with the body. So we believe in the resurrection of the body. So in heaven, we're going to have glorified bodies. What those look like exactly, we don't know. But you can be sure that they're amazing. It's good to think about heaven. I don't think we think about heaven enough. I don't do a lot of funerals anymore. When I served in Atlanta, I did quite a few funerals. And most of the time I was doing funerals for people I didn't know. So it really forced me to think a lot about heaven and hope and what it is that we all wrestle with when we think about death, when we experience the death of a loved one. So it was really helpful for me. So let me just share a little bit about that first. Because ultimately... We're all wanting to be reunited in heaven someday with all of our loved ones, with God himself. And that's where all of this theology of the body points to ultimately. As it says here, the wedding of the lamb. The union of the church, the bride of Christ with the bridegroom himself, the divine bridegroom, the lamb of God, Jesus So one of the things I would always share that I do share at funerals is that 
in heaven, we don't need any more faith because that which we had to believe in is now seen. And in heaven, there's no need for hope because that which we had to hope for here on earth is now realized or will be realized in heaven. So as St. Paul says, one thing remains. What's that? Charity, love. So all of the love that we participated in on earth is celebrated in heaven. And the bonds of love that we form with our loved ones on earth, those bonds are not broken by death. They now extend into eternity. So that offers us some consolation that we're still in contact with our loved ones, even if they've gone on before us. My dad passed three and a half years ago. But I feel like in some ways I'm closer to my dad than ever before. Thankfully, I was pretty close to my dad as he was dying. I wasn't there the day that he died, but I had been there just a couple days before. And then I celebrated his funeral mass. It was funny because right before he died, he was on some pain medication, which I'm sure affected his, uh, you know, his reasoning to some degree. But he said, am I dead yet? I said, no, dad, you're not dead yet. I said, you'll know when you're dead, dad, because you will be more fully alive than you've ever been before. And I think that's something that we as Christians have to believe in, that we will be more fully alive than we've ever been before. Have, you, have any of you read or listened to near-death experiences? I was on a real kick for a while. I was watching near-death experience videos on YouTube all the time when I was working out or when I was eating lunch or something like that. And some of them are just amazing. They're so inspiring, so beautiful. And one of the things that is very common is that people say, like, compared to heaven, what we're living in here is like black and white. In heaven, the colors, there, there are many more colors in heaven, and they're so much more vibrant. And even the grass is like alive in a sense, if you will. Like, it's so vibrant. It seems like it's, it's alive, like it has its own soul of sorts that, that can communicate. So that's one thing. And then, of course, in heaven, there's no more suffering. There's no more pain. There's no more striving. There's, there's just none of that. It's a perfect balance between joy and rest. How's that sound? It's a perfect balance of joy and rest. Because you really can't appreciate one without the other, if you think about it. I can't really appreciate joy if I never have downtime and rest. And I can't really appreciate rest if I don't have some excitement and joy in my life. So there's a perfect balance of joy and rest in heaven. We strive for a balance here on earth, but we all know it's, it's difficult at times. We try for that. What's another thing about heaven? I think 
one thing's for sure that we have this relationship with God then that is just so fluid, that is just so vibrant. And we'll be perfectly happy. We'll be perfectly happy in heaven. So there, there will be this contentment with who we are and, and with who God is. We'll see him face to face. So I just encourage you to, to think about heaven, to pray about that, to, re, to meditate on that for yourself. Every Sunday, every Sunday is really a, a celebration of the resurrection. It's so it should fill us with hope. We have no reason to fear death as Christians. No reason whatsoever. Because heaven is so much better. It's the ultimate healing. I know, we, you know I, I like to pray for healing. When people are sick, I like to pray for healing. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, it's not that I don't think God can heal or that he wants to heal because, because he does, especially to increase people's faith in the resurrection and in the ultimate healing, which is heaven. So for me, I'm like, hey, heaven is the ultimate healing. So I'm not afraid to die. Let's look at the wedding of the lamb. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. At first, Christ's words may seem to undermine all we've said about the greatness of marriage. Quite the contrary. Christ's words point to the crowning glory of all we've said. Marriage exists from the beginning to point us to the marriage of the Lamb. In the eschaton, the primordial sacrament, which is marriage, will lose its raison d'etre, its reason for being, and give way to the divine reality. This means that the union of the sexes is not our be-all and end-all. It is only an icon. We must be very careful never to treat it as an idol. So John Paul II would say that marriage... The union of man and woman and the children that their marriage produces, it's an icon of the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their communion, their union with each other. And so marriage is that sacrament, that primordial sacrament, which reminds us, which speaks to us, of our ultimate destiny, to be united with God. To be the bride of Christ. Let's read from Revelation 19 here. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Well, you've, you've all been invited. <laughs> We've all been invited. 
And so, as I said earlier today, what is our proper response to the invitation? Remember? Faith. Faith is your proper response to believe. To believe. And then to act in accordance with that belief. So you've all been invited to share, to participate in this wedding supper of the Lamb. And at every Mass... We anticipate that ultimate reality. At Mass, we get to participate in it in a sacramental way. It's a real way, but no doubt it's not yet the fullness of what we will participate in. So it's an already, but not yet. It's an already, but not quite yet the fullness of what we will experience. But that's the beauty of of every Mass. It makes present and anticipates the ultimate wedding of the Lamb. Because, as Christopher West likes to say, every sacrament, especially the Mass, is nuptial in some way. Meaning that it's meant to bring about a communion, a union, between the Bride of Christ and the Bridegroom. Let's look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Repeat after me. Jesus is making everything new. Jesus is making everything new. Jesus is making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So there's a lot of symbolism here, a lot of mystical type language, but it's definitely speaking to a reality. And the reality is that the church is the bride of Christ and we are members of of the church and we are being prepared for this great encounter with our God he is making us new he's renewing us as you walk this journey with him as you pray to grow in friendship with him as you receive his divine mercy you are being healed you're being transformed you're being made new And I just wanted to include a couple of these other passages from Isaiah, so the Old Testament, just to show that this was always God's plan. 
This was always God's plan, in a sense, was to marry his people, was to be united with us. Let's look at this, Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. God delights in you. Repeat with me. God delights in me. In the name of Jesus, I declare that I am delightful. And that God delights in me. And I am a joy. Verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. Oops. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to, oh, sorry, the one who re- fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. So on and so forth. Isaiah 62, let's jump down there to the bottom. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called uh, Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married or espoused. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, your maker, your creator marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Good stuff, huh? Some of you might be hearing these things for the first time. You might be thinking, wow, this this is a little bit too much. But it's true. It's true. It's what God wants to make happen. Let's turn the page. The beatific vision. Spiritualization means that the powers of the spirit will permeate the energies of the body because of man's very nature. Perfection cannot consist in a reciprocal opposition of the spirit and the body, but only in a deep harmony between them and safeguarding the primacy of the spirit. So there won't be this tension in heaven. We won't have to battle concupiscence in heaven anymore. Can I get an amen? Amen. Woo! We're probably going to be naked without shame in heaven. Don't let that worry you right now. Oh, Father, please. You know, we'll see. Whatever it is, it'll be just fine. You know, we'll be perfectly happy. So 
There won't be any shame in heaven. There won't be any fear. It'll all be good. There'll be perfect harmony. And we'll see each other as the perfect gift that we all are. We'll have this heavenly vision. So we'll see and appreciate each other for the perfect gift that we all are. We'll see each other the way that God has always seen us. It's a great prayer. I used to pray it for people and with people all the time in Atlanta. So repeat after me. Jesus, help me to see and love in myself. Jesus, help me to see and love in myself what you see and love in me. And help me to see and love in my neighbor what you see and love in them. Simple little prayer, but it's a great way to ask God for his vision to see what he sees. How's that song go, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Right? Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. But I just don't want to see you. I want to see you in my brothers and sisters. I want to see you in my brothers and sisters. I want to see you in myself. I want to see you in myself. I want to see how you are reflected in me in a unique way, in a beautiful way. I want to appreciate that. I want to love that. And I want to love that. I want to see that and love that in my brothers and sisters. God, give me that vision. Help me to see you in others. A friend of mine in Chicago, this is, you know, this is how many years ago? This is over 10 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. At the time, her father-in-law was living with her and her husband. And her father-in-law was a tough old man to live with. Let's just say it that way. And she started praying, Lord, help me to see you in my father-in-law. And one day she was meant to take him to some appointment and she was running late. So she was rushing home and she just knew when she got home that she was going to get an earful from her father-in-law. And so sure enough, she pulls in, goes in the house, and he starts giving her an earful as expected. And she's trying to shuffle him along to get into the car, to get to the appointment. And he's letting her have it, you know. And all of a sudden, she said that she literally saw the face of Jesus instead of the face of her father-in-law. And she was like, okay, Lord, thank you. (laughs) I really needed that right now. (laughs) Because I wanted to just let him have it. Pretty good, huh? So keep praying, right? Keep praying and God will help you to see him, sometimes literally, (laughs) in those people that you might find really hard to love sometimes. But let's just remember, we're all sons and daughters of the Father. And he sees something beautiful in all of us. And he delights in it. Let's, uh, let's go down to those last four short points above eunuch for the kingdom. 
sexual difference and our longing for union reveal that we are created for eternal communion with the eternal communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you've heard us say that now so many times, but I think it's really so important. We are destined, we are made for communion, eternal communion. The spousal meaning of the body will be fulfilled in an eternal dimension of incarnate communion, inclusive of all who respond to the wedding invitation of the Lamb. It is the perfect experience of unity in distinction or unity in plurality. In this union of communion, we will see all and be seen by all. We will know all and be known by all. And God will be all in all. So there will be this perfect communion, harmony, peace in heaven. And we won't feel threatened by that at all. But rather, we'll rejoice because everyone's fullness only blesses me. It'll be like the perfect team, the perfect family. Everyone working together, lifting each other up. If you've ever had the experience of being on a really good team or even just playing a really good game. You know, sometimes, you know, you don't win every game. You don't always play really well. But how about those days when your team was really clicking, right? Passing well or whatever the sport may have been. And you were just like, that was, that was awesome. That was a lot of fun. That felt good to be a part of that team, to be a part of that victory because we worked so well together. Well, I mean, that's just a little tiny taste of, of what heaven will be like. And the, the perfect balance and, and, and the perfect support and, and interdependence that will be in heaven. And I, so this helps too. Right? Like, we, we can't ignore that this, this desire for communion is stamped in our very bodies. That's the point, right? Christopher West will say, I look at my body as a male, and by itself, it makes no sense. And for a woman to look at her body by itself makes no sense. You look at the two of them together, now they start to make sense. I see how they come together. Right? So it's literally stamped in our bodies. And that's a good thing. That's how God made it. Literally, we're made in his image and likeness. So what does that say about God? Well, that God is a communion of persons. That's where we come from, and that's where we're going. We're going back to that. And marriage and family remind us of that. They point us towards that. That's, I hope you're all kind of getting that. That's so important. So, of course, the devil loves to take that which is good and beautiful and truthful, and he just twists it. He twists it. So he doesn't come out with an out-and-out -out lie, usually, because we wouldn't believe it. If it was a bold-faced lie, we wouldn't believe it. But what has he done? Little by little, he has twisted the meaning of human sexuality and family life. It's been twisted little by little, more and more, for 
several decades now in a particular way. For almost 50 years. Well, for, yeah, more than 50 years now. So, there's a lot of good there that we have to be able to appreciate, but then we also have to be able to sift out the weeds. And that's not always so easy, but that's what we've tried to do a little bit here this weekend. So don't repress your desires. That's my point in in sharing that. Don't repress your desires for communion. That's that eros, right? That desire for all that is good and, and true and beautiful. That desire for communion. That desire for love. That's all good. Don't repress that, but rather entrust it to the Lord. Entrust it to God. Ask him to keep it on track so that it will be really life-giving and and help you to reach your full potential and to be happy. So eunuch for the kingdom. Eunuch for the kingdom, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's right there in the gospel. Some non-Catholic Christians don't get it. Why do Catholic priests not get married? Why do religious brothers and sisters not get married? Isn't that weird? Isn't that why there's such a problem with sexual abuse in the Catholic Church? No, that's not the reason why. (laughs) It's not weird. It's actually in the gospel. Jesus talked about it. Being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the top of the next page. Those who are celibate for the kingdom skip the sacrament in anticipation of the ultimate reality, the marriage of the Lamb. By doing so, they step outside the dimensions of history while living within the dimensions of history to proclaim to the world that the kingdom of God is here. Although celibacy points us to the kingdom, It is significant that Christ spoke of it not in his discussion with the Sadducees about the resurrection, but with the Pharisees about marriage. So, by wearing this collar, by living a celibate lifestyle, I am meant to be a sign to all believers, a reminder. I'm meant to be a walking reminder We're all going to live in heaven someday. Right? And we're not going to be married the way that we get married here. And guess what? That's okay. Like, it's going to be awesome. It'll be great. So is that to take away from the, 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 the meaning and the value of marriage? No. No, because if it weren't something beautiful and good, then my not doing it would not be a big deal. But I think you all recognize it's kind of a big deal, right, that I don't get married, right? I could, I could tell you all kinds of stories when people ask me, so you married? I'm like, no, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't get married. Really? <laughs> like some people just like, really? You know, like they can't believe it, <laughs> especially the guys, you know. And women are just like, what? But anyway. So... Yeah, it's funny. But 
it's not a bad thing. It's pointing to something even better, in a sense. It's pointing to something even better. That ultimate union with God. The virginal marriage of Joseph and Mary embraces the heavenly marriage and the earthly marriage, earthly marriage simultaneously. In turn, their virginal marriage literally affected the marriage of heaven and earth. So their virginal marriage was actually fruitful by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you all have called me father this weekend. Well, I didn't father any of you, <laughs> right? Biologically. But you all recognize on some level that spiritually I have fathered you. I've given you life, not just biological, well, not biological life, but spiritual life, right? All right? So there's a spiritual fatherhood and a spiritual motherhood that we can actually all live. You know, even if you are married with children, you can still be a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. But those of us who live a life of celibacy, for us, that takes on a whole new meaning. And so... God invites us all to live our Christian lives with that element of faith, that, that supernatural vision, you might say. Because I said at the beginning of my talk that love remains, that every act of love will be celebrated in heaven forever, for eternity. So every act of love, in some ways, is life-giving. Because it can't be real love if it's not directed towards somebody else, right? I mean, you can love yourself, okay, and you should, right? But ultimately, love is a self-giving to somebody else for their good. So that's why Jesus said, remember, even a cup of cold water given in my name will not go without its reward. Remember hearing that in the gospel? Even a cup of cold water given in my name will not go without its reward. So how many of, just think about how many little acts of kindness we've all done this weekend. Well, they'll, they'll all matter. They'll all be celebrated forever. In some ways, they've added to our personhood. All of those acts of love have enriched you this weekend. They've made you a better person. more like God. The more we love, the more we become like God. I remember some, uh, some kids, I guess they're not kids anymore, but anyway, they had visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary and they asked her years ago, why are you so beautiful? And she was like, it's because I love so much. She's full of grace. She's full of love. One of the reasons why she's so beautiful. I think maybe you all didn't really grow up around John Paul II much like I did, but I would say he was a beautiful man just because of the way he loved. 
And I, I hope you all know people like that, you, you know, like a Mother Teresa. She probably wouldn't have won many beauty contests, but hey, she was a beautiful woman, you know, because of how she loved. And that's inspiring. And we can all do that. You know, we can all grow and become like that. In fact, look at that second to last bullet point on that right-hand side. The perfection. The perfection of the Christian life is measured rather by love. This means that perfection is possible and accessible to every human being, whether in a religious institute or in the world. In fact, a person who does not live in the state of perfection can nonetheless reach a higher degree of perfection than a person who lives in the state of perfection with a lesser degree of love. Talking there about the the difference between religious life or married life. One is not better than the other. Whatever you're called to, well, that's what's best for you. And wherever you're called, you are called to be a saint. Repeat that after me. I am called to be a saint. And I want to be a saint. With God's help. Which is to say, I want to grow in love. I want to become love. I want to be transformed into love itself. And we can all do that by the grace of God. So with that... I will wrap up here.